Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Finally, we arrive at practical theology, or Christian ethics. Although we could easily spend 15 lectures together building up a full edifice of how God wants us to live, in this episode, we'll simply lay the foundation stones of following Jesus. What I mean by follow is to read his words and do them, especially when what he says conflicts with our sensibilities, comfort, or common sense. If we only follow Jesus when what he says agrees with us and then diverge when he disagrees, then we are not following but merely walking in the same direction occasionally. Here now is Theology Part 20, Follow Jesus. This is one of my most passionate lectures because this subject is personal to me, but it also is something that I believe Christianity often doesn't talk about very much. We tend to talk a lot about believing in Jesus. We don't talk so much about following him. And one of the terms I like to use for myself, if somebody asks me if I'm a Christian or what my religion or my beliefs are, I like to call myself a Christ follower. Because the word Christian itself, I mean, first of all, it can be somebody's name. Second of all, a lot of people can use the word Christian that do, that do not follow Jesus, do not read his words, are not interested in changing their lives to conform with what he says our lives should be. So, I don't know, like if anybody else uses the word Christian, I'm not going to judge you. It's, a, it's, it's obviously a biblical word, but I personally like to call myself and to self-identify as a Christ follower because it says something about what I'm doing, not about just like what I believe. So anyhow, following Jesus. I remember talking to a friend's mom one time and I asked her, are you a Christian? And she, she came back and she said, I'm, a, I'm American, aren't I? <laughs> and I was just like, how is, how is that an answer? I mean, is that a yes? I guess that was a yes. She's a Christian. But the problem is, and she rolled her eyes at me like I was dumb for asking. <laughs> and... You know, the, the problem is we get confused about this, especially in places where you have a stronger concentration of Christianity and everyone's just a Christian. But what, what really makes a Christian is two requirements. One is believing in the gospel and the other is following Jesus. So I'm going to define a Christian as someone who does both of these. So a Christian or maybe we could call a real Christian, is somebody that believes the gospel, and that's what we call soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and two, follows Jesus. Look, if you follow Jesus and you do all his teachings, but you don't believe in the coming kingdom, that he died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead, you're just, doing, you're just going through the motions, you're a legalist, you're trying to follow the law of the letter, and you're probably trying to earn your salvation. So if you just follow Jesus without believing the gospel, you're probably going to be an insufferable jerk. But 
if you believe the gospel and it's just all in your head and then you're you're out you know with bitterness in your heart you treat people like garbage you watch pornography or game of thrones because it's basically the same thing and you you believe the gospel but you don't actually follow jesus then what good is your what good is your faith faith without works is dead we read in the bible right so what we need is a complete package we need not just category one without category two or category two without category one we need to believe and follow believe and obey do both following christ is hard following christ is not easy it's not for wimps it's not for half-hearted or uncommitted people following jesus is radical but it is necessary and it's worth it and i want to share just two verses two texts with you on why I think it's worth it. The first is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, John 10, 27. So this is under the category that following Jesus is worth it. And we have John 10, 27 to 28. And we also have Matthew 19, 27 to 30. John 10, 27 says, My sheep, this is Jesus, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand let me tell you that is just <laughs> that is just such an awesome text right there Jesus says that if you are his sheep you hear his voice and you know what it doesn't really matter if you know Jesus everybody knows Jesus what's important is that he knows you and if you are his sheep, you will hear his voice and he will know you and you will follow him. So if you are really his sheep, you're going to hear his voice. You're going to follow him. And if you do that, he says, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just a beautiful text. Look, following Jesus is hard. It goes against our culture. It goes against so much of what people are saying, what our friends say, what our, even our parents at times say, depending on if your parents are Christians or not. And yet, even if you have a hard life like the Apostle Paul, you get beaten, you get mocked, you get ridiculed, you get ruined financially, it's still worth it. It's still worth it because you follow Jesus, He knows you, He will not let anyone snatch you out of his hand. That doesn't mean your life is going to be easy, but it means that it's going to matter. It's going to have purpose. It's going to make a difference. And in the end, you're going to have eternal life. So even if you did suffer for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, compare that to eternity, it's nothing. Anything divided by affinity is zero, right? All right, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 says, then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? I love this question. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for asking this question. Like, he's like the one kid in the class that raises their hand. It's like, ask the obvious question that nobody else wants to ask. Peter's saying, What do we get, Jesus? What do we get? Verse 28, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the Palangonacea, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging 
the 12 tribes of Israel. We looked at this in the Kingdom of God lecture, that Jesus promises to his followers that in the new world, in the regeneration, in the Kingdom of God, his followers will sit on these, or his disciples in particular, will sit on these 12 thrones. But then in verse 29 it says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So that is the payoff. Those who follow Christ get eternal life. It's totally worth it. I'm even going to go one better for you. I'm going to, I'm going to say that not only is following Jesus hard but worth it, because you get eternal life, but even in the process of following him, even in this life, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. Like for example, if you follow what, what Jesus and the rest of the Bible teach about marriage, well especially Jesus, what he teaches about marriage and divorce, you're going to have a better life than if you go, along, go with the flow of what America teaches about that subject. It's different, but is, is you're going to have a better life. You're going to have more meaning in your life. That doesn't mean it's going to be easier because dealing with the same person when they're annoying to you is hard. Or when you get in a fight and you stay relational and you stay in it, you don't just like throw a spatula at the guy. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and leave and go sleep somewhere else. But you, but you say, okay, we're going to take a break. We'll come back to this and, and we'll, we'll work it out because we are committed to each other, right? That is gonna produce a better relationship ultimately than just like going with the flow of what the world says. I mean, what does the world teach us? It says, I mean, what, what do the TV shows do? You meet somebody, you go on a date, you sleep together, maybe you do that for a while, then eventually you say you love them, and then you move in, and then you see how that works, and then maybe you get married, or have kids, or both. Right, that's the, that's the pattern, that's the trajectory that our culture is always putting ahead of us as normal. What does God say? What does the Bible say? What is the pattern there? It says, yeah, you meet somebody, you go on a date, but you don't sleep with them until you get married, and that's when you move in and you sleep together. Right, I mean, that's a totally different paradigm. You're gonna have to be uh, radically committed to Jesus if you're going to hold true to what he teaches and the rest of the Bible teaches about life, about marriage, about kids, about important subjects like that. And if you do that, it will be better. And, and I, I don't have time to get into all this. I mean, I'm a pastor, so this is my world. But like, the stats are totally on the side of what God says. If you look at overall happiness, if you look at divorce, if you look at trauma to children, Children flourish in a secure environment, and cohabitation just destroys all that. So I'm getting totally off topic here, but I'm passionate. So there, there you have it. We need to confess that Jesus is Lord to be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10 is a text that talks about how to become saved. And it says in that text that we can't just call him Lord. Well, let me, let me read it to you. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. This text teaches us that we need to confess Jesus is Lord. By definition, if Jesus is Lord, we do what he says. 
By definition, if Jesus is Lord, we do what he says. So if we are going to be his followers, we need to agree with what Jesus teaches us. We need to walk behind him. We need to follow him. Romans 10.9 says that salvation depends on calling him Lord. Luke 6.46 says, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? All right, I need a volunteer. Jenna, come forward. Come right up here. And uh, what I want you to do is I want you to walk around the perimeter of the room, okay? And we're going to pretend that Jenna is Jesus and that I'm a follower. All right, go ahead. For us, what we do when we follow Jesus is we say, we hear Jesus say things like, love God with all your heart. And what do we do? We follow him. That's no problem. I'm following Jesus. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm like, all right, that's cool. Jesus says, go that way. We'll just keep going in circles. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. <laughs> Keep going, keep going, keep going. Jesus says, I want you to forgive people. Jesus says, keep going. Jesus says, I want you to pay your taxes, show honor to whom honors do. And we just kind of hang out over here. We're not following Jesus anymore. And then Jesus says something like, I'll give you eternal life. And we're like, all right, I'm going to follow Jesus for that one. And uh, Jesus says, no one's going to snatch you out of my hand. And we're like, okay, that's really great. But you know what we're really doing? You can go ahead and sit down. You know what we're really doing here? We're getting exercise. No, what we're really doing is we're not following Jesus. We just happen to be walking in the same direction when he says something we like. And when Jesus says something we don't like, we're not a committed follower. We're just going to do our own thing. Look, if you, if you only walk with Jesus when he says what you like, then you're not a real follower, are you? You just happen to be walking in the same direction. And it might appear like you're following him to the world or to your parents or to your friends, but in reality, you're just a poser. You're just faking it. You're just, you just, you just accidentally happen to be doing the same thing. The way you tell if you're a real follower of Jesus is when he says something you disagree with. When he says something that costs you something, and you say, oh, I really don't want to do this, but Jesus said to do it, and by definition, if Jesus is Lord, then I do what he says, according to Luke 6, 46. So that's what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean you just do the things that he likes. But here's the problem today. The problem is we have all different kinds of Jesuses. We've got hippie Jesus, and hippie Jesus says, it's all about love, man. You just got to love each other. Like, sexual ethics doesn't matter. You know, uh, financial ethics doesn't matter. Work ethics don't matter. You know, you just got to love. God is love, and Jesus is love. So let's just love each other, man. Let's just relax. Don't be so stressed out. That's hippie Jesus. And then we have tattoo Jesus. That's the one and done Jesus. You get it done like a tattoo on you, and you say, yeah, I prayed a prayer once. Just like a tattoo. That's a one-time incident in your life. And you think that that one incident in your life where you prayed a prayer once is going to guarantee that no matter what you do the rest of your life, you're cool with Jesus. 
I don't think so. And then there's the American patriotic Jesus. The Jesus who says, my country, right or wrong. We forget that Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi. Did you, did you catch that? Jesus himself is a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi. He's not American. He's something totally different. And so this whole idea that Jesus is a mascot of America, I mean, look, if Americans want to follow Jesus, that's awesome. And I'm privileged to live in a country where that's available without persecution. I think that's something we need to be thankful for. But as soon as we get confused and we start thinking that Jesus and America are the same thing, we've lost it. You know what I mean? Because now it's watered down. Then the next one is prosperity Jesus. That's the idea that Jesus wants me to be rich. Jesus wants me to sow into his ministry so I can reap blessings. Right? That's the idea that Jesus is here to serve me. He's here to do something for me. The truth is, we're here to serve him. We're not the Lord, he's the Lord. We're the follower, he's the leader. And so the whole idea of using Jesus to get rich, that's a false Jesus too. What about poverty Jesus? The exact opposite of prosperity Jesus is poverty Jesus. That's the Jesus who says, oh, you have to uh, be totally poor, and if you have any wealth at all, if you, if you get ahead in the world at all, you're not a genuine follower. Only true followers are poor. Well, that's, that's the hipster Jesus. That's the dirt poor Jesus. That's the dumpster diver Jesus who says, the only way to be a true follower is to give your finger to the system and say, all the rest of you are hypocrites. That's not the true Jesus either. Then there's the part-time Jesus. Like a mask, you put it on your face on Sunday. And then the rest of the week, you take off the mask and you are who you really are. The part-time Jesus, the compartmentalized life Jesus, the Christmas and Easter Jesus. The idea of cafeteria Christianity where you just go through the line. You're like, yeah, I'll take some love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to take some love your neighbor as yourself. But that forgiveness of that, that boy that hurt me, I'm going to leave that. And then you keep going down the line. That's the compartmentalized Jesus. That's not the real Jesus at all. This is the real... Oh, no, wait. That's not the real Jesus. <laughs> That's not the real Jesus. The Jesus who wants you to be buff. The Jesus who's focused on external image. The Jesus who says, you just got to look nice. Only if, you, only if you get your teeth perfectly white, if you get your hair just right, if you get your body looking the best it can possibly look, then that's the true Jesus. I don't think so. This is the real Jesus here. This is a picture taken by somebody with a time machine. <laughs> And if you believe that, I got some other stuff to sell you. No, this is, a, this is a picture that was developed by Popular Mechanics. It was a magazine, a science magazine, that put together a picture of Jesus based on measurements of skulls found from first century Jerusalem and Israel. Okay? And so what they did is they took the average, and it turns out that in the first century, 2,000 years ago, the average height of a Semite that's somebody from uh, Jewish ancestry or Arab ancestry, was 5'1". They weighed 110 pounds on average. And he didn't look anything like this. He looked more like this. Obviously, we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, but he looked like everybody else. We know that because J Judas had to give him a signal 
or had to give a signal so he could arrest him. He worked outdoors as a carpenter. He probably would have had weathered, tan skin. Popular mechanics put together this image of him. But how do we know the real Jesus? How do we really know the real Jesus? The only way, I mean, this is just one possible way that he could have looked. The only way we can know the real Jesus and not like the popular mechanics Jesus or all those other fake Jesuses that are surrounding us in our culture, the only way to know the real Jesus is to read his words. That's how you encounter the real Jesus, is to read his words. The Bible tells us who the real Jesus is and what he wants us to do. Here's the problem. This is a problem that's been with us for a long time. This, actually, this quote actually comes from the year 1913, over 100 years ago. George Tyrell said, The Christ that Harnack sees, Harnack is a Christian scholar who was doing work on Jesus. He says, The Christ that Harnack sees, looking back through 19 centuries of Catholic darkness, is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. What people tend to do is they look at the mirror and they make a Jesus that's just like who they are. But that's the whole problem, isn't it? The problem is we're not, we're not locking in with the historical Jesus. All right, so let's look at who the real Jesus is from the scriptures themselves. And what I want to look at with you is really the only major, the only major requirement that Jesus puts out there for his followers. The, and, there, and it's very simple, commitment. That's it. Jesus wants commitment. Everything else is a detail. Like whether you do marriage the way he says to do it, or you do forgiveness, or honesty, or the way you treat people who are your enemies, or any of these other things that Jesus talks about and preaches about, these wise sayings, those are all subpoints under the overall heading commitment. That's what Jesus wants. In fact, Jesus is not open to discussion on that. That is an absolute prerequisite, a requirement. So if we look at just a few scriptures on this, Mark chapter 3, verse 31, Jesus tells who is his real family. Now, of course, we know Jesus had a mother and he had brothers at the time that he was active in his ministry. There's no mention of Joseph anymore. But we know that Jesus had a mother and he had brothers. And it says in Luke, or sorry, in Mark 3.31, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mothers and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. According to Jesus, he doesn't say, the one who has an emotional connection to God is my brother, my sister, my mother. He doesn't say, the one who sings uplifting, positive, encouraging Christian songs is my brother or my sister. He doesn't say, the one who prays is my mother or brother or sister. He doesn't say the one that goes to synagogue or goes to church is my brother or sister. What does he say is my brother or sister? If you do the will of God. That's what he said. If you want to be Jesus' brother, Jesus' sister, if you want to be close in a close relationship, 
a family relationship with Jesus, then according to him, you have to do the will of God. If you do the will of God, then you're going on the same, in the same direction as Jesus is because that's what his whole life was about. This might seem radical to you, and I assure you it is radical, and it has caused a lot of suffering throughout time. We think of our closest relatives as people that we have strong commitments to. Right? That's only natural to think that our earthly family is this really important bond. But what Jesus is saying is that doing the will of God is what matters to Him. And that if we do that, and other people are doing that, those people are our family. So you have this idea of, you have your biological family. I'm not saying that's not real. Obviously, that's, that's true. But then you have the family of God. And what we see here is that Jesus is elevating the family of God above your biological family. Now, you might be in the fortunate situation to have those overlapping, where your biological family is part of the family of God. That's obviously ideal, but many times that's not the case. Many, you know why? Because Christianity is not inherited genetically. It's not genetically passed down. Every person has to choose. When you're a kid, you have to go to church, right? But at a certain point in your life, when you grow up, you become your own woman. You become your own man. And you say, I decide this for myself, or I've had enough of that. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, right? Everyone has to make that choice. Those who are unrelated to you by blood, but do the will of God, they are our family. Look at Luke eleven twenty seven. Luke eleven twenty seven says, While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which you nursed. So I guess this woman must have really liked what Jesus was saying, because start, she started like blessing the mother of Jesus. She she you know, I don't know, some people do weird things, right? So Jesus is teaching, this woman's like gets really excited. Maybe she was a early Pentecostal. And uh, she just like blurts out in the middle of it, blessed is your, your mother and she must have been a really great woman or whatever. And then Jesus, Jesus contradicts her. Somebody tries to bless Mary. I mean, we're not even going to go into the Catholic implications of that. But somebody tries to bless Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Jesus is like, whoa, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. Those who hear it and keep it. If you hear the word of God and you keep it, those are the people that are blessed. And so Christianity, by its very nature, is cross-cultural, interracial, international, because a turban-wearing Arab who hates America but loves and follows Jesus is more your brother than the apple pie American football watcher who doesn't care about Jesus but lives in America. Because Jesus is saying, those are blessed who hear the word of God and keep it. If you hear the word, it's not political. It's beyond that. It's something thicker than our traditional shallow rivalries, right? Like, I don't know if in your, in where you live, there, there are sports rivalries. Well, where I live, the Empire State, New York, there is a rivalry, a baseball rivalry, rivalry between the Yankees and the evil Boston Red Sox. And this is a rivalry that, that plays out every year. And 
there are, there are a couple of very brave souls that wear Red Sox stuff around in the state of New York. Obviously, they're mentally handicapped or, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they're, obviously, they're challenged because the Yankees are better. I mean, that's, that's an example of a stupid, shallow rivalry. And then you have countries that have rivalries, America and North Korea. Let me tell you something. If a North Korean names the name of Christ and follows him, that person is your brother or your sister. Even if they happen to live in a totalitarian regime, or we happen to live in a totalitarian regime. Those things are all secondary to the... That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, this goes before family. This goes before... This person is saying, blessed is your mother. He's like, don't don't bless my mother, okay? She's, She's fine. Mary's fine. Bless the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. All right, let's look at the places where Jesus invites people to follow him. Luke 13, verse 22. I'm not saying you can't be patriotic, you can't love America. That's not what I'm saying. I think America is great for a lot of reasons, and it has also a lot of problems as well. My point is not political or patriotic. My point is that Jesus and those who follow Jesus are your real family, even beyond whatever other connections and loyalties you might have. Luke 13, 22 says, And he was passing through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? (laughs) And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, You begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people come from the east and the west and from the north and the south recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. This saying of Jesus pertains to the day of judgment. Many are going to come up to Jesus on the day of judgment and say, Lord, open to us. You see verse 25 right there? Lord, open to us. And he's going to say to them, I do not know where you come from. And then he's going to say, get out of here. Depart from me, you evildoers. I know what you're thinking, but I'm not an evildoer. I'm not a saint, but I, I, I'm not out killing people, right? The fact that anybody thinks that means that you're not listening to Jesus. <laughs> what Jesus is saying here is, is not that okay, there's one group, they're my followers, and they're my sheep, and I give them eternal life, and then there's another group, and they're, they're the evildoers, and then there's everybody else, and we'll, we'll, it'll, it'll, we'll grade on a curve, it'll be fine. There is no third group in the middle. There's no gray area. There's no like, hey, I just, you know, I had a tough life, and so, yeah, I got drunk every night because I had a tough life. There, there is no like middle category. It's like either you're his followers and you're in there with the feast, enjoying it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or you're outside and he says, get out of here. 
you who practice evil, or you who are evildoers. I mean, that should scare us because everything around us is telling us, I'm not as bad as this one. I, I'm not, at, at least I didn't rape anyone. At least I didn't molest any children. At least I didn't cheat on that test. At least I paid my taxes. That is, the, that is the human condition, and it's whispering a lie to us that since we're not as bad as somebody else, we're fine. That's not how it works with Jesus. Uh, another thing about following Jesus, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus, once again on the day of judgment, Therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. There is a, there is a lie in America today, probably in other countries as well, that says religion is a private matter. Your spirituality is something that you can, you can hold close to your chest and don't have to ever have it affect your public life, your work life, your secular friends. You just, you just go, to, you go to church on Sunday, you do your devotions at home. You, it's a private matter. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you acknowledge him before people, he's going to acknowledge you before the Father. Can you imagine that day, Madison? When you come up before Jesus and he sees you, he says, Madison, I'm so glad you're here. And he goes to his father, to God Almighty, and he says, this is Madison. She's with me. Right? I mean, that's what this is saying here. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Look, if Jesus acknowledges you before his father in heaven, everything is good. But the flip side is absolutely terrifying. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There is no private Christianity. There is no, oh, well, I don't want to, I, I don't, I don't want to like make people uncomfortable. There's none of that. I'm not saying you have to be a jerk and hit people in the head with your Bible. <laughs> please, actually, please don't, please don't do that. Please don't psh, knock people in the head with your Bible because, first of all, that's a bad use of the Bible. You're supposed to read it. And second of all, you're going to make all of us look bad by doing that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you abuse people or you act like a jerk. But what I am saying is you are authentic. You stand up for what you believe in. If somebody in the workplace is promoting something that is against what Jesus says, then you have the guts to stand up for it and say, no, I'm not doing that. Or, hey, can I get an exemption from this because I'm a Christian and, I, and Christians don't do this. I need a religious exemption. Or you're in a conversation, which is something that happens a lot more frequently, with some coworkers or some people um, that are in a hobby or a sport or some secular friends you have, and they start talking about something, and you stay in the closet. You're like, oh, Jesus, I don't know Jesus. That's denying him before people. You know, and we need to confess him before men. Look at verse 34. Matthew 10, this part we're reading right now, is called the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. That's an important phrase because Jesus always was upfront with people. He never, he never used a bait and switch technique. It's not like Jesus would come up to somebody and be like, hey, would you like to have eternal life? And then somebody's like, oh yeah, that sounds really good. And then he's like, all right, just sign right here. And then you sign right there. And then you find out, Oh, that means I have to do this, 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 and this, and now I, I feel like I've just been cheated. 
Jesus doesn't do it like that. Before people agreed to follow him, before he let them follow him, he's like, all right, you want to follow me? This is how it's going to be. And if you're not in for all of it, then you're not worthy to be my disciple at all. That's the way Jesus handled it. It's sort of like the opposite of our sales techniques that people use in our culture today. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus knows he's controversial. He knows that if you're going to follow him, you're going to have family problems at times. That's, he, he just says it flat out. This is, this is going to happen if you follow me. And a person, okay, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus says a couple of things here. First of all, He's requiring priority, right? He wants absolute commitment. He doesn't want to be second, third, fourth. It's not like, all right, well, I love my parents, I love my spouse, or I love my kids, and then Jesus. I mean, that would be totally reasonable if you think about it. That would be totally reasonable. But Jesus is not reasonable on this issue. On this issue, he's extreme. And if we're going to be his followers, then we need to either agree with it or say, well, Jesus, I'm going to just like kind of do my own thing and just appropriate some of your teachings. And then I'll probably get some teachings from Muhammad because he said some cool stuff. And then I'll get stuff from the Buddha and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll learn some of the, the Vedas from Hinduism. And I'll just kind of like hodgepodge together and amalgamate my own little personal philosophy of life. And Jesus is like, all right, fine. But on the day of judgment, talk to the hand. You know what I mean? It's so like you can do whatever you want with your life, but if you want if you want it to go well on the day of judgment, if you want to be his sheep, you've got to hear his voice. And his voice is saying, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying, I have to be first. I have to be the first person in your life above your parents, above your children. Once you have children, I mean, Naomi has children, three children, right? Cosmos and Naomi have three children. When those children come, you find... You find places in your heart that you didn't even know existed before to, to, as an expression of love for those children. I mean, you want to mess with me, just touch one of my kids. Just even, just even touch one of them. Unless it's like a friendly touch, obviously. But like, and I, I don't know what I'll do because it's just so emotional, right? Because I love my children, and you, and you love your, your siblings or your, your spouse, you're not married, well, you are in the back. You love each other, right? I hope you love each other. You should love each other. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yet Jesus says he wants to be ahead of all that. He says he wants to be first. If he's not first, you're not worthy of him. And then verse 38, crazy, right? Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The cross was a symbol of what in his world? Crucifixion. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what is crucifixion? It's a, it's a method of capital punishment. It's a way to execute people. Jesus is saying, if you don't take up your cross and follow him, you're not worthy of him. What does that mean? He's saying, 
If you're not willing to die to get executed, don't bother. Talk about commitment, right? I mean, what else do you have other than your life that you can give? Jesus is saying, if, you don't, if you're not willing to go to the cross, if you're not willing to carry your cross, if you're carrying your cross in his world, if you're, if you're carrying a cross, you know what you're about to do? You're about to get to the place of execution. They're going to attach the cross, and then they're going to hang you on the cross, and then you're going to suffer and die on the cross. It's, it's, it's all inevitable. If you see somebody carrying the cross, they're on their way to execution. Jesus says, unless you're willing to do that, you're not worthy of me. And then he says in verse 39, just in case we didn't get the point, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you are going to find it. So what is Jesus telling us? He's saying, count the cost. Think about it before you jump in. Is it worth it to you? You're going to get purpose, eternal life, deliverance from issues that we, that we face today. You're going to get a, a huge family, that's for sure. But he has absolutely no tolerance for hypocrites. If there's one thing, if there's one behavior that puts a bad taste in Jesus' mouth that is going to make him raise his voice, it's hypocrisy. Matthew 23, for example. Jesus goes on and on and on about hypocrisy. If you want a woe, Jesus will give you a woe right to the face if you are a faker. The reason why I know he'll give you a woe is because he gave all of them woes. <laughs> the scribes and Pharisees, right? This is Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves or allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's the way, that's the tone of Jesus in Matthew 23 because in Matthew 23 he's addressing hypocrisy now sadly in our day and time Christianity is known for, for hypocrisy yeah we are known for hypocrisy this is the greatest embarrassment to us because over and over and over again Christians people who name the name of Christ find themselves caught in adultery find themselves embezzling money doing things that are dishonest, and then they get busted for it. And every time one of, the, one of, the, one of these people falls from, from such a height of power, it's always in the newspaper. This is, and so this is an embarrassment to us. But it does not change the real Jesus. The real Jesus is still the same real Jesus he ever was. And the real Jesus says, I want authenticity. I want genuineness. Do not fake it. If you're going to follow me, follow me. Otherwise, you're like a scribe and a Pharisee. Scribes and Pharisees were people whose whole lives focused on God and observing what God had commanded. That's what their whole lives were about. There was no requirement that said you had to be a Pharisee in order to be a Jew in good standing. Pharisees are people who said, I am so zealous for the things of God that I'm not satisfied just going to synagogue on the Sabbath. I want to teach the law. I want to study the law. I want to study the words that God had written down so that I can understand them and follow them as far as I possibly can today. And yet those very people were the people Jesus always fought with because they didn't 
have the right heart and they were concerned about how people looked at them rather than what the right thing was to do in that situation. And they had no compassion. So hypocrisy is a behavior Jesus can't stand among believers. So I encourage you, take his words seriously. The words of Jesus are no joke. They are no joke. They are serious. And look, if you don't even know the words of Jesus, shame on you. You call yourself a Christian? Why don't you read the words of Jesus? Shame on all of us if we don't read the words of Jesus. Like the rest of the Bible is great and you should read it and it's going to help you in your life. But the words of Jesus are like here and you should know them because if you don't know them, how are you going to follow him? Jenna, come back up here for a second. Come back up here. Jenna's going to be Jesus. And this, this, uh, this is an illustration of her. Go ahead, get, get started. She's, she's being Jesus, right? And this is me not reading the words of Jesus and following him. Go ahead, you can sit down. If you, if you don't read the words of Jesus, it's like you're following Jesus blindfolded. I'm going to hit something else. <laughs> if, you're, if, if you don't read the words of Jesus, then you don't even know what he said, so you literally can't follow him. What are you following? Just like whatever you think the words of Jesus should be. All right, so I got to preaching there. All right, John, John chapter 15 is where I want to close out this lecture. John 15, Jesus gives an analogy. It's about a vine. A vine grows up on a, a fence. That's a vine, <laughs> okay? And, uh, you know, a vine has these branches and they kind of like intertwine on stuff, right? And then they have other branches that come off of them. You get, you get a, a nice vine out of that, right? But a, a vine has these branches. That's my main point, okay? And Jesus says that he is the true vine. John 15, 1. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser, okay? So Jesus is the, the uh, main part of the vine. That's Jesus, okay? And then he says his father is the vine dresser. So his father is over here and... You know, he's got, he's got like some scissors, all right? Those are scissors. <laughs> His father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So you have all these different branches over here and... They're supposed to bear fruit. So let's take, for example, a grapevine. You guys can probably imagine what a grapevine looks like better than my diagram here. But like on the grapevine, there's supposed to be these like bunches of grapes. Did pretty good on the grapes, didn't I? Nailed the grapes. <laughs> right? So like this branch right here, this branch right here has grapes on it. So is, is, the, is the vine dresser going to cut that branch? No way, it's got grapes on it. That branch is doing its job. But let's say this branch right here, there's no grapes on it. And everywhere around it, there are all these grapes. There are all these grapes all around it, but this one branch right here, there's no grapes on it. So you know what he does? He cuts it. He cuts that branch. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
So he's doing two things. He's, he's going to cut off the branches that don't bear fruit, get rid of them. And if you bear fruit, he's going to cut off the fruit because any gardener knows the exciting time is when the fruit is ready to be picked. And so you pick it off. And then if you pick it off, then that same branch will grow more fruit. This makes sense, right? Those of you who know how this stuff works or have experience with, with growing fruit and vegetables. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, now think about it for a moment. Let's say you are a branch on the vine. Okay, so you're up here and you're, let's say you're a vine, like you grow a branch. And then you're, you're that branch and you're just like, you produce fruit, right? It takes all this effort and like, no, no. So long as a branch is attached to the vine, it naturally grows. So long as you're attached to the vine, a branch naturally grows. It just, it's just in its nature to grow. And if you're, if you're a branch, you naturally grow fruit. You naturally grow fruit because that's what branches are supposed to do. Jesus is saying, look, abide in me, remain in me, dwell in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the, in the vine. Apart from him, look, if you're, if you're apart from him, if you're just a branch down here, hanging out, just like a fish on dry ground. You're like, hey, I'm free, I'm doing whatever I want. You're withering and dying and not producing any fruit. That's the truth about a branch that's not connected to the vine. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And so Jesus is telling us that we need to stay connected to him so we can produce fruit. We need to abide in him. This is the same thing as saying, read my words, do what I say. We need to spend time with him, we need to read his words, we need to obey him, and we need, we need help. Because the bottom line is, you can't do it on your own. And that's kind of going back to what we said about the, what I said about the Spirit. That the Spirit is here, is Christ in you to empower you to live righteously, to live for him. Verse 7 there, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Or the other one is, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bear, bears much fruit. That's not what I'm looking for. Here it is. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you're going to abide in Christ, that means you're going to keep his commandments. Over and over, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, abiding in Jesus is keeping his words, his commandments. All right, so that's, something, that's some information on following Jesus. It's hard, 
I know it's hard. It's hard in my own life. I'm sure there have been times where it's been hard in your life. And we are going to suffer. There's no sense of being afraid of suffering because it's like, it's going to happen. If you follow Jesus, it's just going to happen. In one form or another, you're going to suffer. But it's worth it because you have purpose, you have meaning, your life matters, it makes a difference. You can be an agent of reconciliation, an agent of salvation in other people's lives. And in the end, we have eternal life. Well, that's it for this one. Thanks for tuning in. I've got some links on the show notes for this episode as well as a full outline of the material and verses covered here. If you want to see other posts and episodes about Christian living, I I have a link for that at the bottom of the show notes for this episode. I would love to hear your comments on this episode. If you would like to log on to restitutio.org, you can find Theology Part 20, Follow Jesus, and leave a comment there. I did want to mention that last week I was in Africa, in Kenya, spent a week there with Maurice Chihilu, and I was very fortunate to get an interview with him. So I'm hoping to work that up, and I've done another interview with Jerry Wirrell on the somewhat controversial subject these days of abortion. Uh, And I've got other planned interviews that I'm working on as well. Um, I think what I'm going to do is just continue on with this theology class. I've got a number of more episodes left in it. And then once that is completed, then I'll get into some of these other interviews and material that I have in storage right now. So So stay tuned for a change of pace after we finish this theology class. Uh, But in the meantime, hopefully you're enjoying this attempt to really encapsulate Christian theology in one class. By necessity, it's a bit brief on each of the different subjects, but hopefully is thorough in the breadth of subjects covered. Also, if you haven't yet signed up for Converge Fest, Uh, I think it would be great if you could sign up sooner than later. I realize this event is not until August. It's August 2nd to the 4th, 2019. Uh, Once again, we have no plans to do this event again. So if you miss it, you can't just say, oh, I'll come next year. We're not planning on doing this next year. Uh, We may never do it again. Our heart for this is that it would be a weekend of encouragement. It's not going to be excessively theological, although we we will have certainly Bible teachings during it. Uh, but it is a time for encouragement for the family of God, and uh, you know, essentially we're sending out the invites to people who hold to the one God view. The event itself is not going to be a theological conference of any kind. It's going to be a festival for the whole family. Uh, also, we are considering allowing booths for people who have written books or who have parachurch ministries, including podcasts, and websites, and blogs, and this sort of thing. And so if that's you, and you're interested in showcasing your material, and in uh, letting other people know about what you've done, please get in contact with me. You can email me, sean at restitutio.org. That's S-E-A-N at restitutio. It's restitution. Just take off the N. Dot org, and I will uh, forward that over to Stan Chi, who is in charge of organizing this part of Converge, and uh, we can we can get you hooked up with a booth and get, get some opportunity for you to have some exposure to your different books and uh, resources that you would like to promote. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.